Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. Um, and Lord, even as we hear the word which was just read for us, there are all sorts of uh, emotions and caricatures we might have for you. Um, caricatures of judgment, which are at one time, and on one hand, biblical, and on the other hand, not biblical. Um, and so, Lord, we ask that whatever it is, Uh, that we think of you, that we actually do the work that Christians are called to do in not lording our minds or our affections or our presuppositions over your word, but to humbly put ourselves under your word, your word which divides our soul and spirit, piercing um, of the bone and the marrow and laying us bare before God. But as the result of this spiritual uh, examination, We encounter Christ who is able to sympathize with us and to make us even wounded through the weight of our sin whole before God through faith. So Lord, we love you. We need your word today and we are privileged to gather as your people in this place at this time. We pray this in your name, amen. So I was reading a book not too long ago which described the journey many take to illegally cross the southern border between the U.S. and Mexico in hope of a better life for their family. And the the book was written by a former Border Patrol agent who had firsthand encounters uh, with these individuals seeking refuge and the harrowing experiences that many of them had. He described one conversation he had with a detainee where what happens were these people want to get across the border. They know they can't make it on their own. And so what they do is they pay money to drug cartels. And the drug cartels capitalize off of this by taking people across the border. But these cartels are so driven from the pure monetary aspect of getting from point A to point B that they have no concern at all for those who are actually journeying with them. And this one man described how he was carrying his young six-year-old nephew on his shoulders and his nephew actually died from heat stroke and exhaustion and the cartel was so determined, so unwilling to stop that they didn't even allow him to stop and bury his nephew but instead cast aside his body without any sort of pause or burial. And we are momentarily pausing in our series in the book of Proverbs to look at what the book of Hebrews has to say about God's people and how unlike that cartel the church is to be, even though we also are described in the book of Hebrews as people together on a journey from point A to point B. In fact, the author of Hebrews calls us as people on a quest looking for a land of a better promise, looking for a better hope when we see this in Hebrews chapter 13, verses Uh, or Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. Speaking of the heroes of the faith, he says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. And so last week in Hebrews 10, which if you haven't turned there yet, take the opportunity to do so. In Hebrews 10 verses 19 through 25, we saw that the church is a people who together draw near to God Not based off of simply how much you make or your skin color or your hobbies, but based off of the gospel, which saves the many and makes us one in the confines of the local church. 
But what happens when we as the church, we as that body of this holy caravan encounter members in our midst who are in need of assistance? Reading stories like that one of the cartel should cause us to feel uneasy and to cringe. But I wonder how many of us in our thoughtlessness towards our brothers and sisters in Christ just as easily shrug off the spiritual wandering and weak in our midst as long as we are assured safe passage ourselves. But this is not the mindset God's church is to have towards our fellow believers in Christ. Last week, we saw the churches to care for each other through doctrine, through encouragement, through gathering, through stirring one up in love so that we, we might be encouraged in obeying Jesus. But how does the church respond? How do you respond when the person whom you are caring for has moved past the reach of encouragement and is now in need of correction? When we'll see today in our text, how do we respond when a fellow member diligently and willingly wanders from the line of Christ. You see, if we believe, looking back at what we looked at last week, that the only way to come to God in full confidence is to come through the veil of Jesus Christ and faith in the wonderful gospel that saves sinners and restores us to God, then we believe that for someone who has taken that profession of faith but who wanders from it is wandering to their own death that there are those who, if they were to do that in this body or in any other body that the Lord brings together as a church, that those people are dying in your midst and we ought to have an emotional response towards that. John Chrysostom, who was a pastor who lived roughly a couple hundred years after the New Testament was written, saw this need in the local church. And what he said to his church back then is as true for us today when he says this. He says, let us not be faint-hearted towards one another. For this does not arise from enmity or hostility, but from having a small soul. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is teaching his disciples what it's like to care for each other in this new church that is about to be established. And he begins to prescribe to them what kind of soul we ought to have towards what Jesus is calling these little ones, these least of these, these fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who might for a season be weaker than you. And look at what he says in form of a parable in Matthew 18. See to it, you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angel always sees the face of my father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of that one that went away? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So I've heard many of you, I'm sure many of you have heard this parable before. And oftentimes when we hear it, we go immediately to a true theological conclusion, and that is to focus on the nature we have vertically with this chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And this is wonderful joy for the Christian. Christ has come to seek those who have wandered off. Christ has come to capture souls because of his deep affection for those who have neglected the wellspring of life, and he brings them back. That is, we saw this last week, to come to God is first to be captured by Christ. Is to come through the loving hands of the shepherd or to not come at all. And yet, Jesus' main point in this parable was not to simply say that Jesus pursues straying sheep. But instead, he says, because it is the will of the Father that none of these little ones should perish, you who have been pursued by the good shepherd in your salvation also make a life of pursuing your brothers and sisters when they wander off. 
because Christ pursued our soul and through conversion has expanded its walls, it is Christians, those saved by the gospel of grace, who have a soul large enough, bold enough, and loving enough to pursue our brothers and sisters in Christ who are for a season seemingly falling away. And this is what we're going to see. This is the main point in our text in Hebrews today, is that the church cares for itself by loving each other in difficult ways. The church cares for itself by loving each other in difficult ways. And I mean difficult in that it's going to be hard for you. It's going to be hard for the brother. It's going to be hard for culture to understand it. But at the heart of it, the reason that's behind this is the loving will of God who desires to rejoice over the salvation of the lost. And as we journey together as a church towards this homeland of glory, this new heavens and new earth which Christ will one day bring, God has given you as a church us as a church, a responsibility to care for the lost outside of these walls, to care for the salvation of our coworkers and our neighbors and our friends. But he has actually given a first responsibility and he has given us a distinct process in which we care for those who are showing themselves to be lost inside of the church. Last week, we saw the wonderful benefit that comes. We do not forsake gathering together, for the day is drawing near. And so what he's saying is this gathering, this encouragement we have as a church is a means of helping people see the glory of God and flee from sin and so stand with confidence before God on judgment day. I don't know if you've been around this last year, but our meetings together have been disrupted. Even now, we're spaced, we're covered, we're digitally disconnected. It is not perfect, it is not ideal. And I remember talking with our elders last May and I said that in the midst of this pandemic and this physical, emotional, and spiritual separation that is ensuing that we must become prepared to care for those who through isolation and through darkness have given way to unrepentant sin in their lives. And this has turned out to be the case. Not because I'm a prophet, not because I can see the future, but because I really believe what the Bible says about the church. That it is an essential part of the health of the Christian to be neglected only to your own harm. Next week at our members meeting, we're gonna have a members only portion at the conclusion of it where we are going to go public with what has privately been going on in the life of a brother in Christ for a number of years. And this is going to be called, has been called, church discipline. It's something our church has never done publicly yet for both good and bad reasons. But in God's providence, to be a faithful church, to be a Hebrews 10 church, to be a 1 Corinthians church, to be a New Testament church, to be a Bible-believing church, Jesus actually tells us what to do and why we're going to do it. To be a faithful church and for you who are members here to faithfully exercise the covenant you have towards one another, you're going to be asked to love a brother in a sober way. It's because of this that we're gonna look at three aspects of love when it comes to church discipline in our text today. These two things are going to be, first, we're going to examine the loving heart of church discipline. Then we're going to look at the loving how of church discipline. That's the means of it. Then lastly, we're gonna see the loving hope of church discipline. And so what I wanna do is I'm gonna read much of what Rick already read for us to open up this sermon today. But what I want you to listen for in this is I want you to see how turns out Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 is not disconnected from Hebrews 10, 26 through 39. They seem a world apart in our mind, and yet they're meant to be seen together. But also I want us to see the heart of the author of Hebrews for the lost member in the midst of him, or in the midst of this church. So this is gonna be our first point today, the loving heart of church discipline. And here's our text, verses 24. So we're gonna start with a couple of verses we saw last week. We're gonna read through 39. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So when we read this, I hope you hear the heart of the author of Hebrews in this. And there's a couple things we can glean from this. And we're going to look at two, two things here. We're going to see first the heart of the sinning member. That is, we want to understand what is going on in the life of this individual. But secondly, we want to see the heart of loving correction. That is the heart of those who are being Christian in the midst of this sinning member. And so first, the heart of the sinning member shows us the nature of this kind of sin. And we should want to know the nature of it. Because he's talking about someone who despite having a profession of faith, is someone who's now proclaimed to be an adversary of God. Liable to fury and destruction, God's vengeance and his just judgment in condemnation. Who is he talking about here? Well, first we see the author of Hebrews is not talking about someone who's knowingly a non-believer. This isn't written to the non-Christian mechanic who works on your car. This is someone who we see in verse 26 received the knowledge of the truth. Someone in verse 32 was enlightened with the confession of the gospel. Someone who is throwing away the confidence they once had before God. Someone who at times was numbered and among the believers and even suffered for the sake of the gospel. This passage is written for one who is a professing fellow believer. But does this mean that anyone who wrestles with sin as a Christian is subject to this dreadful fate? No. In fact, 1 John, the Apostle John tells us that you, as a Christian, if you think you have no sin, you deceive yourself. You're a liar. Even saved by grace, we are sinful people. But instead, look at how the author of Hebrews describes the heart of this individual in Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So there's three helpful things there when we want to describe and understand who he's writing to. The first is that this person is going on sinning. And so the Greek grammar here communicates this idea of ongoing active sin. This is not a past completed event this is not a one-time occurrence in the distant past. This is something that is actively being engaged in. Two, this person is going on sinning deliberately. Perhaps what your translation includes, the word deliberately can be also be translated willingly. There is a desire for this sin. And now, we desire all sin. That's why we sin. We sin because we desire it. But the point is that this person is not looking at their sin standing aghast at it, wanting to be free from it. Instead, it is seen as his glory. It is seen like Gollum and his ring as my precious. 
this thing that he is not willing to give up. And three, not only is he going on sinning, not only is he sinning willingly, but this person is doing so with a presumption that something apart from Christ's sacrifice will remove the burden of his sin. In other words, this is a self-professed believer who's living in active, unrepentant sin with no desire to stop and who thinks that they can faithfully follow Jesus with this being unaddressed. That some new means of salvation will present itself and say, hey, it's okay you lived like this. Perhaps they think that coming to church offsets the wrong they're doing. Or maybe if they read their Bible enough or go to community group enough or take communion enough that it kind of levels the scales and in the end they're going to turn out okay. But the point here the author is making is that there is nothing apart from Christ's sacrifice for sins which can give you salvation from sin. And how do we respond to this sacrifice which is sufficient, this sacrifice which we ought not to move beyond as this individual is? How is the work of Jesus the wonderful son of God who came and died for our sins, who lived perfectly where we lived in sin, who died sacrificially, the death we deserve, who is risen and in the presence of God, which is our very hope. How is that imputed to us? How do we get that? Jesus himself shows us in Mark chapter one, where he begins his proclamation ministry and he just says this, the time is fulfilled. The gospel of the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The way in which this sacrifice becomes yours, the way in which you are ransomed from the judgment the author is speaking here is that you not only believe in this savior, but you repent of your sins. That word repent is a positional word. It's not simply an apology. It's not simply saying sorry. The word repenting involves a turning away from sin and a turning towards Christ. One of the most helpful metaphors I've ever heard is when Barry Bonds or whoever your favorite baseball player is, no one's favorite baseball player is Barry Bonds. So anyway, uh, whenever that baseball player hits a home run, that ball repents. It was going this way and now it's all the way that way. It went a different direction. When we come to Jesus, when we realize our sins, Jesus has not come to save you from poverty. Jesus has not come to save you from loneliness. Jesus has not come to save you from a lack of purpose. Jesus has come to save you from sin which means we run to the one who removes us from what we ultimately fear, which is the sin that sets us apart from God. And if those come to Jesus with repentance, Jesus accepts them. There's an early heretic in the church named Nevatus, and he and his followers began saying that if there were someone who is baptized in the church, someone who professed faith in this Jesus, but who for a season of their life lived in unrepentant sin, that there was no way back for them. That they had wandered too far from God. They had thrown away their salvation and there stood no hope. In other words, he did more than cast a reasonable doubt. Instead, he said that there is no way back for the sinner. This is the opposite of the gospel. The gospel accounts for our sin. The gospel accounts for our progress in following Jesus. And passages like this give us, give you confidence that there is, by the blood of Christ, a way back. There is no danger for the sinner to come to Christ. Instead, there is full assurance that if you come with faith and repentance, if you come seeing your need for this Savior, that he is abundantly sufficient in his sacrifice to atone for your wrongs. There is a sacrifice costly enough for your sins, a king loving enough to wash you pure if only you would turn to him in repentance. The gospel is not for those who never wander. The gospel is for those who always return. 
And this is when we understand how lovely and how holy, we've been looking at this in Proverbs, we talk about righteousness. Righteousness is not rooted in our actions. Righteousness is rooted in God's reality. We see how pure God is when we see how loving his son was, when we see how violent the cross was. It is scandalous to think that a God would forgive sinners like us. But you know from a biblical perspective, what is more scandalous to think is that God would turn away one who comes with faith and repentance. That God would limit his mercy. Where God prescribes his followers to forgive multiples on multiples, but to think that God himself would forgive less. God accepts those who come because the gospel is for the sinner. The son of God came not for the healthy, but for the sick. There's a person in this room, if there's a person watching online today who thinks they have run too far off or gone too far deep, here is the hope of the gospel that Jesus Christ takes all who come to him with faith and repentance. If this is your fear, if you lack this confidence, Lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees by coming not on the merits of your own work, but coming on the merits of the shepherd who died for you, who gives you the gospel so that you might stand in full assurance before God. If that's you and you've never considered this, if you've never responded to this call for faith and repentance, Don't leave here today without it. Hopefully as the sermon unfolds and as we get to our confession of faith and even as we conclude in song and prayer, we wanna help you understand what it means to do that. And if you're still unclear, talk to someone in here because we don't want you to lose this. And yet, despite how accessible the gospel is for any sinner who comes with faith and repentance, this person in this text is not the one responding with faith and repentance. The author of Hebrews is not speaking to the sinner who thinks they need mercy. Instead, it's the one who thinks they need no mercy. It's the one who refuses to return. The heart of the sinner in this passage is the one who refuses to come back to Jesus with repentance and instead of drawing nearer to God with the church, verses 19 through 25, he's drawing nearer to sin and judgment, verses 26 through 39. But in the midst of this, this person is not left alone. Because here we begin to see the heart of loving correction. We speak up in this instance. His brothers in Christ, the author of Hebrews. And why do we speak up? Because we recognize that this man who is walking in the name of Christ, but shows no repentance or faith in Christ is literally a dead man walking. And we want to correct his expectation. Look at the contrast painted here. Hebrews 10 verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now look at the contrast in verses 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But what does remain? He's answering in verse 27. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fire that will consume the adversaries. The joy of the Christian the one who models faith and repentance in this savior is that we get to together with the church move towards God with an expectation that we will be accepted on the merits of Christ. But to live outside of repentance means that you have no expectation of salvation, but instead an expectation of judgment based off of your rebellion against that faith. Where what you confess with your mouth is shown to be false with your actions. That instead of fearing sin, you love sin. That instead of turning to Christ, you turn away from him. Life hangs in the balance when it comes to Christianity. The gospel is not another worldview. The gospel is not a sub-genre of music. The gospel is not your Facebook status. The gospel is life and death reconciled only by your relationship to the Son of God who came to pay for your sins. And the author of Hebrews lovingly shows this individual that he is in danger of the fire of hell. He references a passage in Deuteronomy where Moses is warning 
the people of God, of people in their midst who entice them to follow other gods by worshiping other idols. And those people, if those actions are attested to by two or three witnesses, testify against that individual and that individual is to be put to death. That's how dangerous idolatry was then. And the truth is that's how dangerous idolatry is now. But in God's spiritual kingdom, those witnesses actually begin to plead with the sinner. But there's a greater set of witnesses which stand against this person. Did you see that? It's not just witnesses inside the church who say this is where you're sinning. The witnesses that stand against the person who claims faith but continues in unrepentant sin is the triune God himself. He says, you have trampled the son of God. You have made a mockery of the covenant of salvation the father has given and you have outraged the Holy Spirit of grace. The result of sinning against these three members so continually, so unrepentantly, is that you are so hardened that you are about to fall into the hands of a living God who has active justice and will justly judge those who stand opposed. So why might we go to the sinning brother or sister and preach to them the harsh reality of this judgment which seems contrary to love in our world today? Because we love them. Because we want them to see the danger they are in. We refuse to let them walk off in the wilderness without first warning them of the danger at hand. And when we begin to do this, when we begin to move towards others in love, you have begun to do to do biblical church discipline. Immediately after Jesus shares the parable of the shepherd leaving the 99 on the hills in search of the one, Jesus begins his teaching, which is the longest and clearest passage on church discipline in all of scripture. If you want to pursue lovingly like that, if you want the joy of celebrating the return of the lost like that, you must know this. How is it that we are to love our brothers and sisters in sin. The answer is the way Jesus tells us to love them. How is it we're to care for one another by helping each other not fall into sin? We are to love them how Jesus called us to love them. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God and it is a merciful thing to fall into the hands of a biblical church who wants to love you as Jesus has called us to love each other. But this is why we must know what this looks like. This is our second point. The loving how of church discipline. Look at what the author of Hebrews does after he warns this unrepentant individual of his sins. Verses 32 through 36. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your own property, since you knew yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So what do we do even as we warn these people of the danger of their sin, what is our posture? It's actually a posture of pleading. Did you see that? He says, remember your former days. Remember how you lived. This is why when we gather together at congregational meetings, when we welcome in new members, we require our members to affirm that. That's not just because we're a democratic process. That's because we want to say to that individual, we believe you're Christian. After any elder introduces a recommended member to the congregation, they say it is on behalf of their, this credible profession of faith and the visible fruit in their life that we recommend this person for membership. Why do we do that? It's so that when you have a brother and sister who is running away from Christ, we can go back and we say, do you remember when all of us said, you knew the glory of Jesus, you knew the love of God, you saw the danger of sin, do not throw away your confidence. 
Come back. Come back. Come back. That's also why at our member meetings, we begin by reciting our covenants to each other. And as part of our covenant that we recite is a commitment to lovingly pursue faithful discipline in the lives of others in instances of unrepentant sin. The church needs to know what this looks like because the church has a responsibility to participate in it. John Bunyan said it this way in his poetic theology of the church that I mentioned last week, his, his theology textbook, which was poetry. Look at how he puts it. He said, if hospitable, I must myself concern with my dear brother as I do discern him tempted or wandering from the way. Else as I should, I do not watch and pray. Pray then and watch. Be yourself no drowsy sleeper. Grudge nor refuse to be your brother's keeper. Do you see your brother's graces at an ebb? Is his heel taken in the spider web? Pray for your brother. If that will not do, go to him and warn him of this present woe. Sidebar, British people somehow rhyme do and woe. Don't know how, but the point still stands. (laughs) And what I love is he presents this as hospitable responsibility. And where does he get this idea that if you, want to be, if you want to entertain others, if you want to be hospitable towards your brothers and sisters in Christ, you must go to them in the midst of their sin. You have an obligation. Where does he get that? From Matthew 18. Again, right after the call to pursue the one over the 99, look at how Jesus outlines this process in verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. How many of you have been in homes that over the dinner table have where two or three are gathered? There I am. They're telling you you're about to be disciplined, so (laughs) consider whom you eat with. But that's the context of this passage is actually the authority that God gives to the gathered church under the responsibility to care for each other. And here we see there's four steps in this passage. Two of them are private and two of them are public. And each step is meant to see what we see in Deuteronomy 9 when God disciplines Israel. It is to discern what is in their heart. It is to discern if the heart in your midst is unrepentant or if it's going to be wooed back by the gospel of grace. The first step of church discipline is one that I pray and I hope you guys have experienced a lot of. And that first step is when you have sinned against a brother and that brother comes to you or that sister comes to you and reveals to you your faults. Now, these conversations are not things that we lovingly desire. They're not easy. But man, I pray that we become a church who wants to pursue the health of each other in such loving and difficult ways, going, knowing that sin is dangerous, but knowing that your, your Savior died to care for that sin and to welcome them back with grace. It's actually in my experience, the experience of most of our elders, that 90% of church discipline issues stop here between two brothers and sisters in faith. This person generally realizes their sin, is aided by their brother, repents, and asks for forgiveness. But there are times where repentance and reconciliation doesn't happen after step one. And then step two happens. We bring in two or three others, other believers, other members of your church. And two things can happen here. There could be two reasons why step one didn't work. The first could be that maybe you, the person who thinks you were sinned against, 
You weren't actually sinned against. Or you who see the issue as sin in the life of your brother and sister when it's not actually sin. And that's where when you go and you begin to talk it through with other people in your community group or another elder or a deacon, you be, they kind of lovingly correct you and say, uh, brother, I don't actually think this person sinned against you. I don't actually think this issue is sinful. Can I maybe help you see it another way? Can I help you bear with what is perhaps a weakness but not necessarily sin? Or perhaps it was actually sin. It is something that's dangerous to you and dangerous to that person and dangerous to the church. And they still refuse to listen. Well, then you take these two other loving members of the church and you go to this individual and they say, we really think this is serious. If this is really what happened, if this is really how you're living your life, we want to help you. And this is where an additional majority of church dismal cases once again and in the confines of a loving but small group of brothers and sisters in Christ. But if after that appeal, they refuse to see the weight of their sin and turn back to Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ brings this issue to you, to the whole church. And this third step of discipline is what will happen at our members meeting this next Sunday. The goal of this, the goal of bringing this to the members of this church It's not to create a peep show or a spectacle. It's not to create a gossip section or a gab fest. And in fact, if you are a member who thinks you might wrestle with this, then the elders will actually ask you to remove yourselves because this is for those who want to help, not those who want to be tickled by the downfalls of somebody else. The church hears this so that they might see two things. One, while you will not know, all of the issues of sin, you will know that the issue is sinful. And two, you will know that you now have a biblical responsibility to pray and to plead with this brother for his salvation. And none of this happens fast. In fact, this issue we see on Sunday is five years in the making. Five years of pleading and praying and working in private with a brother. But now after that time has been exhausted and those appeals are not being heard. It's time for the members to join in making a weighty appeal to this person. What does this mean? It means that if you know this man, if you have a relationship with him, that you would personally take responsibility to say, brother, tonight your soul is required of you. There is a way back if you would come, if you would return How can I help? For what's probably the greater majority of you who might have seen this person, who might casually know him but don't have a relationship. We don't bombard him. We don't all show up at his door. (laughs) But you make an effort. You put a reminder in your phone. You might say, I don't know this person besides a face I once saw in my membership directory, but you make a commitment to take his name before the Lord and to pray for his soul that just how God rescued you from sin, he might be rescued by the same grace. And what happens next? More time is given. Time for those to go and plead and time for others to go and pray. Time to see if this person does indeed listen to the church. And even if there are glimpses, sputters, shimmers of grace, we want to celebrate what God might be doing and delay any further action in hopes of the wonderful reality that the gospel works. It saves sinners. The gospel has never saved a saint. The gospel only saves sinners. We pray that that works. But if after a sufficient time has passed, the church is called to make a judgment. And this is the fourth step. If this person continues to show a lack of repentance, Jesus has so chosen, so equipped, so authorized the local church to remove this person from membership and to let this person be known as a non-believer or what Jesus says as a Gentile or tax collector. Look at again how this is said in verses 17 through 20. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, what is he doing? He's saying, no, 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 you're equipped for this. 
This might seem hard. This might seem queasy. This might seem countercultural. But again, I'm telling you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And in this motion of the church, God works. And you might say, because the church is called to make a judgment, you're actually called to judge if this person you think is saved. And there's certainly a parable in Matthew 7, judge not lest you too be judged. That's the very first thing we think of when we start talking about judgment. But what's interesting is actually at the end of that passage, Jesus turns you to go and judge. He says, the point isn't don't judge, it's don't judge sinfully, don't judge too quickly. First deal with the plank in your own eye and then do what? Walk away from your brother. No, go to your brother. In fact, look at what Paul says. This is astounding. And this is difficult for us because it's countercultural how we think about the church. But look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians verses, uh, in chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? That is those outside the church. Is it not those inside of the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil persons from among you. He makes this astounding claim. God will deal with those outside the church. God will deal with your lost coworkers, your lost neighbors. But you, you are responsible for the person who is inside the church. You are responsible to deal with the sin that is there. That's again, not to say we're not sharing the gospel. That is the opposite of what we do. The point is to show there's a nearer priority in the heart of the church, and that is to care for those who are among us. And we also see in 2 Corinthians 2 that this judgment that the church gives is not done by a single man. I don't stand up and say this person's not a Christian. The elders don't even stand up and say we don't think this person's a Christian. The majority of the church in 2 Corinthians 2 is called to say, with the best wisdom and discernment and prayer that God gives to the church, say this person is not responding in a way that's consistent with repentance. And therefore he has left the marks of Christ behind. For no one comes to the wonderful abundant sacrifice of mercy except for those who repent. What is this judgment? So what happens if we are to say, this person, we don't judge you to be a believer? It is both weighty, it is not ultimate. And so what do I mean by that? I mean that the church cannot save anyone. And the church cannot ultimately judge anyone. We do not confer salvation. We do not therefore either confirm ultimate damnation. And look at what Jesus says in affirming this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body. So that's not what church discipline is, but it's the context of this verse. Um, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Church discipline is something God gives to the church and something God uses to save people from the dangers of hell and to protect his church from ongoing sin. But the church cannot condemn and the church cannot save. Only God can do that. In exercising church discipline, we are not saying we are God. Instead, we are saying that we are gods. We belong to him and he has dictated what it is we are to do. But the shadow of church discipline, the fear on this horizontal human level, is meant to represent the substance of God's discipline. As we've been working through the book of Proverbs, one helpful way that we think of biblical wisdom is that, biblical, that Proverbs is wisdom beforehand. It's wisdom before you need it. Church discipline is godly judgment beforehand. It is to provide you a helpful fear that whatever you might feel at this level is infinitely small compared to what stands against you at this level. Do not fear us, but if you fear us, brother, please fear God and come back and return. And so what do we do? We gather together, we say to this brother, we do not believe you. 
to have a credible profession of faith or fruit in your life anymore. You stand in judgment and we are removing you from our membership role so that you might see that we say you need to repent. How do we interact with this individual or future individuals? We treat them with a distinct sense of evangelism. We don't shun him, but when we're with him, there should be a distinct sense of difference. That things are not the way they were. That something huge has gone on. (laughs) That they were once joined to you in faith, part of one body, made one with you. But now they are apart from that. His soul is in danger and yet we continually to faithfully call him back. Jesus says in Matthew 18 that he shall be to you a Gentile and a tax collector, and there's a holy sense of difference there. But in the book of Matthew, who does Jesus spend his time with? Gentiles and tax collectors. So it is not business as usual, but it is not unconnected love. It is this difference which only the gospel can keep the tension of. And we do this so that we might continue to proclaim to him the means of salvation in the gospel of Jesus. And this is our last point today, the loving hope of church discipline. Read with me verses 35 through 39 of Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We do this difficult, countercultural act of love so that the person in sin might return to faith and find life. That they might endure and receive what is promised in the gospel instead of what is promised in their sin. There is this wonderful thing that happens in the scope of First and Second Corinthians, and that is that the church does uh, what we may be doing in a number of months, and that is they put out the sinner who is living in unrepentant sexual sin in the context of First Corinthians. They put him out of the church. But guess what? God used that to save this brother. This brother came back to the church and look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. For such a one, that's the one who is put out, the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. The goal is to have a full welcoming back into the gospel of grace. Not welcome back to the church with the scarlet D of discipline, but welcome back to the church with the scarlet B of brother in Christ, of blessed by the Lord, of belonging by grace. You see, we do church discipline not because the Bible cares about processes, but because the Bible cares about people. When we get caught up in this, there are right ways to do it and wrong ways to do it. But we don't do it because we want to be right. We do it because we want to see souls saved. We want to see the church protected. We want to see God glorified. And there might be times where we put out from our midst people who we will never see again, never hear from again, and we trust God with them. But God generally gives us things for our good and for the good of others around us. I've talked to two people recently. One person was an individual who themselves was brought to step three of church discipline. It was made known to the church. And this individual said that it was the hardest season of her life. And yet God worked the most kindness in her life she has ever seen. And she was welcomed back and restored. And she knows now more than ever the weight of sin, but the beauty of grace in Jesus Christ. I knew another believer who in college was at a church, sitting back with our GCF people. He had a peer who sat next to him, professed faith with him, was a member of the same church with him who was put out of the church. And over a decade later, she was brought back in. 10 years, and God proved his faithfulness and welcomed him back 
and the church rejoiced. We lovingly pursue this discipline because we want to share in the joy of the gospel. Man, when we do baptisms, that is a joyful moment. But what Matthew 18 tells us is there is actually a greater joy. There is a greater joy in seeing someone return to the faith that excites our soul and says, this gospel works. This Jesus saves. This God mercifully holds his and no one can snatch them away. We want this witness in the church. And you also want, I also want to know that were I to be the one, that I would be pursued like this that I would not be shrugged off the shoulders on our journey to glory, but that I'd be turned towards, that you would be turned towards, pleaded with, presented the glorious gospel of love in Jesus Christ, but warned of the dangers of sin. With souls expanded by the love of the good shepherd, we want to encounter under shepherds who pursue each other with biblical love. And here is the hope of Hebrews. Hope for the hurting, hope for the doubting, hope for the sinning. He begins to quote the Old Testament where he says, yet a little while and the coming one will not delay. But my righteous shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Life as a believer is hard. The devil wages war against your soul. But brothers and sisters, God has given you not only the gospel which saves, but the church of the saved, where together we keep each other on the road to glory. Together we preserve each other in faith. Together, we hold to the lane of faith in obedience when life is wonderful, and we hold to the lane of faith with repentance when life is difficult. And as we help each other, we help each other endure to the end. We help each other get to the great inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and kept in heaven for us, where we encounter one day not the withdrawal of God who stands apart from our sin, but we encounter God's pleasure pleasure at those who come to his son. You see, the opposite in this text is not, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who are perfect. The opposite is we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are those who have faith. Turning to Jesus with faith and repentance means that our lives will wrestle with sin. Our brothers and sisters will be tripped up on hurdles of this life, but God's true church will endure, not only because their brothers and sisters hold to them, but because Jesus himself holds to them and brings them to God, robed in his very pleasure by the gospel. I wanna leave us it's been a long sermon today. <laughs> we're not done. We're almost done with the sermon. Don't worry. We're not done here today. But I want to leave us with this pastoral word from John Calvin. Has a practical point of application for us, and this is what he says. He says, let it be noticed that this truth, he's speaking of Hebrews 10, belongs also to us. For we whom God has favored with the light of the gospel ought to acknowledge that we have been called in order that we may advance more and more in our obedience to God and strive constantly to draw nearer to him. This is the real preservation of the soul. May we as a church be preserved all the more by drawing near together to the throne of God through assurance in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray for all of the things that we hold true. Lord, it is a cause for comfort and rejoicing when Jesus says that he holds all whom the Father gives him and no one will be able to snatch them away. 
but God, make us responsible actors in your sovereign hold by practicing difficult love in the lives of our brothers and sisters in faith. Lord, may we do it for the good of the other and may we do it so that the others might love us. Lord, we thank you for the assurance that comes in the gospel, that what we hold ourselves to is not the standard of perfection, for only you can do that. And one day, one glorious day, you will present the church to yourself without spot or wrinkle or any such blemish. But in this time, you do call us forward with faith and repentance. So let it be so in our midst. We pray this in your name. Amen.